What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Here are your names. Mr. Brown. Mr. White. Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blue. Mr. Orange. Mr. Pink. How many guys do we need to talk about a movie, Adam? That's Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink, and if the movie is Reservoir Dogs, you need at least three for the Mexican standoff at the end. Where's Michael Phillips when you need him? This week on the show, a Sacred Cow review of Quentin Tarantino's debut film, plus our top five films of the year Reservoir Dogs was released, 1992. That and lots more. Let me tell you what Like a Virgin is about, Josh. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you by Harry's. For guys like you who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code FILMSPOTTING when you check out. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. In anticipation of the release of the festival gem L for Leisure, Mubi is showing the filmmaker's previous short feature, Blondes in the Jungle, an indolent, deliciously sarcastic journey of white privilege through foreign jungles and shot on dazzling 16mm. And now that May is here with the Cannes Festival of course, upcoming. Mubi is featuring a Cannes takeover. They're showing over two dozen beautiful films that premiered at the legendary film festival. And once the festival itself rolls out the red carpet, Mubi's online magazine, The Notebook, which is really essential reading, is going to be bringing you coverage direct from the Riviera. Over at Mubi, that Cannes takeover, Josh, they got the fun started on Friday, May 1st, with our beloved Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which was the Grand Prix winning film the year it played at Cannes from director Nuri Bilga Jalan. And on both of our 2012 top 10 lists, I believe. Absolutely. Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash film spotting to redeem now. That's mubi.com slash film spotting. listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, and man, have I always wanted to say this. Josh, put that coffee down. (laughs) Coffee's for closers only. Also, WBEZ really doesn't like it when we bring hot liquids into the studio. Relax, relax. This is iced. The top five this week, the best films of 1992, the year Alec Baldwin helped us learn our ABCs. Always be closing. That and the Film Spotting poll later in the show. But first, when Reservoir Dogs came out, Adam and I were movie geek teenagers. We were bound by our DNA to love it. Does Quentin Tarantino's debut hold up some 20 years later? Our Sacred Cow Review will tell. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. Wait a minute. Who didn't throw in? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink. Why not? You don't tip. You don't tip? What do you mean you don't tip? You don't believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you. Cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. All right, since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in. But normally, I would never do this. Never mind what you normally would do. Just cough in your goddamn buck like everybody else. Thank you. 
We began these Sacred Cow conversations a few years ago with, if I recall correctly, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, not just as an excuse to discuss widely appreciated movies, but ideally to revisit widely appreciated movies that we feel a strong personal connection to. When we rewatch these movies, often for the first time since around the time they were released, we're seeing them as older, hopefully wiser people, or at the very least, older, wiser cinephiles. We're also, though, seeing them through the eyes of our younger selves. So it occurs to me that there may never be a more sacred cow for me than Reservoir Dogs. Tarantino's directing debut featuring Mr. Orange, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, and the rest of Joe Cabot's color-coded collection of thieves in the aftermath of a diamond heist gone horribly wrong. As I've noted several times over the years on the show, Reservoir Dogs was a game-changer for me, coming along at the exact time that I was discovering a passion for movies. What I realized, though, today is that Reservoir Dogs wasn't a game-changer. It was the game-changer. Not merely a significant influence, but the reason, the summer before my freshman year in college, I discovered a passion for movies. Was it inevitable? If not Tarantino, would some other filmmaker, some other film around this time have stoked that fire? Maybe. Probably. But maybe not. What's your relationship to Reservoir Dogs, Josh? What do you think it was that so captivated me at 17, and of course so many others of whatever age who the ultimate movie geek ushered in to movie geekdom? And with the benefit of your wisdom now, should the 17-year-old me be embarrassed at falling for this false idol, or be proud for recognizing a truly sacred cow? Well, it put you in a club at that time, right? I remember that's how I felt too, is here's this movie somewhat out of nowhere that I went nuts for, and it really did spark that passion. If not spark it, maybe it was already there. I was pretty into movies at the time, but really make it burn a lot hotter. And that's how people felt about this. They felt that way about Tarantino's voice, even though the movie wasn't the most original concept or setting. It was the way he went about telling this familiar tale. And yeah, I I had a similar experience. It it was like, this is the kind of movie I want to see. This is the experience I want to have in a theater. And this is the experience I want to have talking to others about movies afterwards and dissecting it, quoting the movie. I mean, it's such a quotable film. And a lot of times those are the ones that stick with you. I think when you are that age that you can just throw references back and forth. So I had the same experience with you at the time of its release and have probably watched it. I'm not sure, but Probably every time a new Tarantino film came out, I would throw it in in advance just to kind of relive that experience a little bit. And also to ask the very questions that these Sacred Cow reviews are meant to ask is, was I fooling myself on that one? Was there a reason it hit me at the right time when I had the right sensibility? Uh, Was I being gullible? And I'll admit I've watched Reservoir Dogs with increasing suspicion each time because I've gone on to have a much more conflicted relationship with Tarantino's films. It's been an up and down relationship for me with his work. And I often think there's got to be a clue somewhere in there in Reservoir Dogs about why this wasn't a guy that blew me away on first watch and I was all on board for the rest of his career. And I found this on that revisit. I Hmm. found some things that were clarifying for me as to why I do resist some of his films. But while first off, we should probably start with just the rediscovery of how exciting this is as a piece of filmmaking mm-hmm. is that is that pretty much where you were at with the 100%. experience 100 all right so you're you're still all in well i think 
one of the reasons why it did probably hit both of us right as we were really starting to study film is because even as it works as this heist picture, this genre picture, it is so meta in terms of filmmaking Mm -hmm. and what movies are about, not just in the way that it references previous films and genre tropes, but in the very, let's take that opening scene, yeah. the pre-credit sequence where they're having breakfast before the heist and the most famous monologue in it, Tarantino's, about Madonna's Like a Virgin. And essentially, he's giving a master class there on deconstructing an artistic text, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what we were both just starting to learn to do. And here it's being demonstrated for us by a bunch of cool criminals having, you know, using this dialogue that's so quick, so witty. The camaraderie there is irresistible. And it's doing exactly what we were just learning to do in the movies, in a movie that we were loving. So how could you resist that at that age? Yeah, certainly 1992 me never would have known the word meta. And 1992 me never could have articulated what it was, what was happening on screen that grabbed a hold of me. But 2015 me can. And I do want to preface all this, even though it should be obvious, by pointing out that I surely recognize the great cinema existed before Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs came along. It's just that up to that point... I hadn't seen it yet. There were no art house cinemas where I grew up. And, you know, of course, in the early 90s, there was no Internet, no streaming. I couldn't get a hold of these things the way you can get great films now and broaden your horizons. And even though, yes, you can make a compelling case that Quentin Tarantino has been tremendously influential, it's not as if he came along and invented a wholly new cinematic language. But he was using a language that was foreign to me at that time. And that excited me a lot. And let's talk about some of those things. You mentioned the opening scene. But... The structure, of course, breaking it down into chapters the way he does, but also that nonlinear chronology, flashbacks that inform the current situation and our understanding of the characters and their relationships. Seen movies that certainly employed flashbacks, but not this liberally and not this effectively. And not that long either. I mean, he really digs into a flashback and lets them breathe. It's not just mercenary, like, you need to know this, so I'm going to go here to give you this. It's okay, we need to know this, but isn't this a fun place to be? Let's stay here for a while. Right, which is why sometimes we get flashbacks within flashbacks. (laughs) So that was eye-opening. Mr. Orange, even though he's Freddy at this point, the Tim Roth character, we'll just call him Mr. Orange throughout, when he delivers that commode story, starting it in that flashback, in his apartment practicing, continuing it with more confidence when he's performing for his mentor, then finishing it in front of his audience, except... Of course, Tarantino could stop there, and he doesn't. He flashes back to something that didn't actually happen. Into fantasy. Into fantasy, (laughs) where he's delivering his lines right to the cops in that fabricated story. So something I've come to really appreciate about all of Tarantino's work that started with The Reservoir Dogs was that pleasure in performance, and you certainly see it there and at various points in this movie. When the cops are tailing Mr. Orange, when he comes out of his apartment and gets in the car, and the camera's in the back seat, and we get the long take where it follows the cops for a little bit as they drive. Now, I didn't know at 17 that that was most likely a reference to Gun Crazy, a direct reference to this great noir Gun Crazy I wouldn't have even known that until eight years ago, actually, when I saw Gun Crazy for a review here on the show. It didn't matter, though. It was playful. It was making me aware of the camera and how the camera can be used to tell a story. A couple more examples. Mr. Blonde, the famous ear-cutting scene. That camera tilting up, going to the left, averting our eyes for us. Those kind of rhetorical flourishes. And I could go on cataloging these, including a lot more subtle rhetorical touches. But the point is, I think, Josh, these moments exhilarated me because it was so new to me. Yes, but also because it was the first time I realized there was an artist 
crafting all of this behind hmm. the scenes. Every movie I had probably seen up to that point was virtually indistinguishable from each other, from the next. They all could have been directed by the same person. I couldn't really look at movies the same way after Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I can understand that. For me, probably that experience was Miller's Crossing. I think that was 1990. Does that sound right? Yeah, 89 or 90. The Coen Brothers. So that's where, I mean, how, with the Coen Brothers, how can you not know there's <laughs> a filmmaker behind the camera? The, that is what they do. And so that was definitely my experience of, wow, there's someone making these choices and look at how effective they are compared to what they could have done. The Commode story. Maybe the highlight for me of this revisit, certainly the whole section where he's acting with his senior officer played by Randy Brooks. What is it? It's all about the essence of acting. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is an extended sequence. Got to be naturalistic. Got to be Marlon Brando. We quote it all the time here on the show. And it's funny. It's clever. But it's also true. You're learning as I was starting to learn about how do the movies work? How do performances work? That was something I knew nothing about, had no real experience or interest really in acting. And here in this movie, I was starting to learn how does an actor work? How does their mind have to think in, in one way? And this scene gave us that. So Knowing again, the details, the specifics, the backstory. Just living it, living mm-hmm. and breathing the character, which is what he has to learn to do. So some more cinematic meta elements there. And what I also liked and realized in watching that scene, particularly closely this time, is we think of Tarantino sometimes as a brilliant script writer, that he nails the dialogue and he gets the conversation, which is true. He absolutely does. But there are certain essential points where his movies, and Reservoir Dogs has this too, become purely cinematic, where they don't even need dialogue. And the commode story is one, because what is the punchline of that scene when Roth goes and doesn't just leave the bathroom to get away from the cops as soon as possible, but when he goes to wash his hands, yeah. take his time, he puts and the then back hits down and hits the, the, dryer. the dryer. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but this time it just struck me as you could almost see it in retrospect if there were any critics who said, well, Tarantino just writes snappy dialogue. He shuts up the cops with the dryer. Mm -hmm. He shuts up the dialogue and we get something that's just purely cinematic and action and a noise, no talking, but says everything that there needs to be said. Well, how about as well the fact that in terms of embodying a performance, he's so confident with what he's delivering that he doesn't sneak out of there as fast as he needs to. Again, it's all a fantasy. Right. His fantasy version of this. He's so confident. He's so cool. He's got everything so together that he can pause to wash his hands like he should, but then also take his time at the dryer. I love that. Yep. That, Cause that's the character he's selling. Right. And another moment of, I mean, the camera, as you mentioned, uh, is so crucial and used in intricate ways here. But another one that struck me in this revisit is during that opening dialogue scene where they're all around the table at the diner and it's just circling them from behind casually. It's enfolding them together. It's very communal as they're telling these stories and talking about like a virgin and teasing each other. And then there's that one moment where Kaitel's Mr. White and Joe have a little bit of a a tense moment over the book that Joe is writing in. Mm -hmm. And you could tell they're sort of teasing each other, but it does have a little bit of antagonism that wasn't in the other conversations. And what happens? We go to a standard reverse shot, reverse shot, and that community is broken. And we get them in separate edited shots. And then after they resolve it, we go back to that circle. Right. But that little break mm-hmm. hovers over that scene because suddenly you realize, okay, these guys, if one of them gets pushed just a little bit too far, this could go the wrong way. And that percolates throughout mm-hmm. the rest of the film. Give me that book. 
Are you going to put it away? I'm going to do whatever the f I want with it. Well, then I'm afraid I'm going to have to keep it. Hey, Joe. Want me to shoot this guy? Shit. <laughs> you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. <laughs> of course, Tarantino also gives us a little bit of foreshadowing where this, mm-hmm. of course, is going to lead to those two butting heads in a really similar way. You're listening to Film Spotting. We are discussing Reservoir Dogs. It's one of our Sacred Cow reviews, not really inspired by an anniversary of sorts. It came out, what, 23 years ago at this point. But we're we living were up to a promise, yeah, right? We promised to at do the live it. show. That's right. So we're going to have some fun going back into our early lives as cinephiles as we talk about Reservoir Dogs. And I mentioned Gun Crazy and how I didn't know that reference. I wouldn't have gotten any of his references at 17 when I saw this originally, and I'm still missing many of them, I'm sure, including this just hit me today, Josh. I feel legitimately bad about this. I still haven't seen City on Fire, the 1987 Hong Kong movie that supposedly was such a huge influence on this movie for Tarantino. Knew that, of course, over the years of appreciating this movie, but had completely blanked on it, and I probably would have tried to do my homework had I remembered it and seen that movie. But I did get Madsen's jab at Keitel when he has to defuse their first big confrontation, and he says, you must be a Big Lee Marvin fan. It made Mm -hmm. me laugh then. (laughs) It made me laugh now, even though I probably hadn't actually seen a Lee Marvin movie. But it's just such a pithy deconstruction of the machismo on display there and throughout so much of the movie. That all said, not really knowing the references and maybe missing some now, I do think it's constructive to look at this movie within the context of film noir. I mean, obviously, you've got the criminals and the heist aspect to it, and the dress even with the suits harkens back to some of these movies. I think about Kubrick and the killing a lot with this film. Lawrence Tierney, one of those references where he's Joe Cabot, and he has a line in there at one point where he says, Mr. Blue, I think, is dead as Dillinger. He played Dillinger in the 1945 movie Dillinger. So... That's where Tarantino's getting very meta. But talk about the playfulness that I appreciate so much. The common film noir voiceover is replaced here by what? Stephen Wright's DJ. K-Billy's super sounds of the 70s. That was the Partridge family's Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted, followed by Edison Lighthouse's Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. As K-Billy's super sounds of the 70s weekend just keeps on... The stakes of this movie are so high, right from the very beginning, after that opening conversation at the diner. Life and death on the line from the moment this movie begins, a lot of intense situations, and yet you've got this presence who has no perspective on the events that are unfolding whatsoever. He's not omniscient, he's not unreliable, he's a complete non-factor, and yet, at at least one point, he's in a way, dictating the action. Michael Madsen dancing to Steeler's wheels as he tortures the cop. He's this constant presence, but you can't have a more droll, unaffected performance amidst all these stakes than Stephen Wright. I love that touch. Who is it, or what is it, that leads to the downfall of our heroes here? And let's take Mr. Orange and Mr. White, I would say, as our heroes because of their relationship, which we'll talk more about. It's not greed. It's not a femme fatale, certainly. It's not lust of any kind for a woman or for a man. And it's not even because of an attraction to a woman in a relationship with a woman. It's all based on a friendship, a platonic relationship with another man. This bond that develops between those two men, Keitel and Roth. And that subversion is something I can appreciate intellectually now, but it was emotionally satisfying to me at the time. The first time in subsequent viewings, I was thoroughly invested in that intimacy and that honesty or the compulsion for honesty, even as there's some dishonesty going on there between them. What's at stake throughout this movie, Josh? 
as a viewer, is not, is Mr. Orange going to survive? That's really a foregone conclusion from the beginning of the film. And I think that's certainly another aspect to noir that I've talked about over the years, the sense of fatalism. Fatalism, right. It's obvious, right? That sense of dread that no matter what you do, it's futile. You're going to try anyway, but you're going to fail in the end. And here Tarantino shows us in the first 10 minutes that everything this character is doing is truly futile because he's going to die. That's just where this movie's going. So what this movie transforms into is what the stakes transform into is what will happen to this friendship when Mr. White discovers the truth, whether he discovers it for himself or when Mr. Orange finally breaks down and tells him what's going to happen then. How is that going to affect these two men? That's really what I appreciate about this film. Stop banging your head. You're going to bang your hole on the floor. Yeah, you don't want to hurt the floor, do you? Can't do anything for you. But when Joe gets here, it should be any time now. He's going to help you out. He's going to take care of you. Okay? We're just going to sit here and we're going to wait for Joe. Who are we waiting for? Scared, man. He's holding me. Yes. It was really striking how much time is spent when uh, Mr. Orange and Mr. White first get back to the warehouse and he's just holding him there. I mean, this is a relatively brief film. It's under two hours. There's a lot to get to. There's a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. And here the movie pauses for these two to have this moment of intense commitment expressed to each other, at least on the part of Mr. White. He even takes the detail to comb his hair, Mm -hmm. to pull out a comb and comb Mr. Orange's hair as if it's sort of this last gesture. If he's going to die, well, at least I'll I'll have this is all I can really do for him. This is all I can do. So that was striking. I don't know if I'm as invested in their relationship as you were as the movie went on. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that did hold me back a little bit, which is tied to my overall concern, is how quickly and eager I felt the movie is to get to that nihilistic ending between them. And there are a couple things along the way we don't know. In retrospect, it's easy to put a lot of importance on their relationship, and it's certainly there in that opening scene. But we really don't know where they don't know who's who for quite a long time. And there is a new issue of stakes when we find that Mr. Orange's plan overall is to get Joe, the kingpin, to in a sense, mm-hmm. to the warehouse. So he does have a goal there and he needs to, even if he dies, if he can get him to come, he'll have fulfilled his mission in some sense. So the ending, and we're just going to talk spoilers because the movie's 20 some years old uh, and has very likely been seen by anybody who's listening to us right now. That ending is so, again, maybe eager isn't the right word, but it seems like everything is set up for us to have that moment of Keitel pulling the trigger. And I'm not sure that I bought all of the emotional setup that meant to get us to that point. Hmm. But the larger thing about the ending for me, it's tied to this idea of glibness that is something that I think is a defining trait of Tarantino, and it's the most problematic trait for me, is how his films at certain times and in certain scenes can be 
almost cruelly glib about what's going on. And the difficulty for me, the reason why I continually wrestle with this is because I do think it's such a crucial part of his voice. I mean, if he couldn't be witty and casual and have this informal jester-like quality to him, that opening dialogue scene in the diner wouldn't work, right? He needs that sort of glibness. There's glibness there that serves the purpose of the scene. But there's also times when the glibness comes across to me as shallow or not thought through or just too casually dulled out. And I'll talk about a couple of instances in the film where it struck me this way. One was the ending. The other is in, this is almost throwaway moments, but they add up. And it's something that's kind of dogged Tarantino throughout his career is when and how he uses the N-word. I haven't followed all of the debates back and forth on that, but it struck me on this viewing is that it is slid in there very silkily as part of the the talk that these guys have, the lingo, Mm -hmm. the criminal back and forth. And it's just casually dropped in again without much thoughtfulness to it, it seems to me. I'm not objecting to it being there, but it's the casual nature where it's slid in. Those are just tiny details. The torture scene, I think, is an interesting one because to me, that's where the glibness comes out. It's partly in the music of the Steelers Wheel song. It's partly in... When we leave it, though... See, this is why I'm torn, because when we leave it, we follow Mr. Blonde out into the parking lot. There's something really interesting going on there that no other filmmaker would do. Yeah, when the sound goes away, the the sound goes away, trails off behind him. It really roots us in the space. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, we're not watching a movie. We're in the room with him because of that sound effect. So I appreciate that technique. But there's also a glibness overall where we're not quite sure when Mr. Blonde says something like, I just enjoy torturing a cop or, or something like that. You do have to ask the question, okay... Is the movie enjoying it? And you mentioned the shot. It's enjoying it up until it does the quick pan away for the really bad part. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just an overall, you use the word playfulness. Yeah. And I think that's key. When Tarantino's playfulness for me curdles into glibness, that's when I find it harder to get on board. And I think it's a distinctive factor for me among his films that aren't as strong. And I'd say the Kill Bill movies, um, Inglorious Bastards, I'd put in this category, and those films that are among his best, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, those are the ones where he really modulates that glibness, if that makes any sense. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I guess I don't fundamentally see it the same way you do, and I don't really have a good counter to it. I think you're one for three. I did notice this time that the glibness with which he employs those epithets seemed to me him reveling a little bit too much and being kind of a jester and a provocateur and, hey, I can get away with this because even though I haven't established myself yet, I'm Quentin Tarantino and I can do whatever I want or he can ground it in, well, these characters would talk like that. Right. But there is a little bit of a difference between really exploiting that and a case like, I was thinking of Goodfellas, where Martin Scorsese has these mafioso characters a couple times drop the N-word in the context of them saying how we're different than these kind of hoods on the street and you believe that they would really make that distinction and use those words Mm -hmm. in those moments. And there's a similar conversation here. Yeah, there is, but he goes back to it again and again, and at some point it's not as funny, maybe, as it was the first time, or it just doesn't have the impact that it had. So I'm with you on that one. But the other scenes, the way that he pulls that camera away so we really don't have to revel in the horror, I guess that shows restraint for me while at the same time exposing Mr. Blonde for who he is, which is truly a terrible, loathsome sociopath. I think that's okay. That didn't really bother me. And at the end, 
I honestly, this time, I really listened for it, and I may be misreading it by putting any ambiguity into it whatsoever, but I actually felt like there was a little bit of ambiguity in whether or not Keitel really pulls the trigger, hmm. or the cops actually come in and it's their bullets. And so I kind of liked that, and as I said, because I was so invested in their storyline, I really felt like the whole movie is just building up to that exposure of the truth. So it paid off for me in that moment. I also think this is something I noticed, and you can buy it or not, but this whole notion of their relationship and kind of the sense of family almost, whether they're just friends or they kind of become almost like brothers or almost a father-son type scenario. If you think about that Mexican standoff and how those three characters are positioned and what's going on in the scene, actually it's four of them, of course, right? You've got Joe, the boss, who is looking to kill Mr. Orange right. because he's the one person who wasn't part of their family. He was the one guy who violated the sanctity of their group. He's Joe's mistake, That's too. right. He's his mistake, so he's trying to kill him. Chris Penn, who's amazing in this film, just wonderful at every he's moment. He's really good. He is shooting Harvey Keitel because he's threatening his dad. Right. Don't you point that gun at my dad. I love mm-hmm. the way he says that and the emphasis on dad, right? He's protecting his father. Similarly, Harvey Keitel is there protecting his boy. He's protecting his family as well. So there is something at stake. There's something more going on than just, well, I wanted to build up to these three guys pointing guns at each other and we all get to have fun at the bloodshed. Hey, look. It's been quite a long time. A lot of jobs. There's no need for this, man. Let's just put our guns down and let's settle this with a conversation. Joe, if you kill that man, you die next. Repeat, if you kill that man, you die next. Larry, we have been friends, and you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put bullets right through your heart. You put that gun down now. God damn you, Joe. Don't make me do this. Larry, stop pointing that gun at my dad! And that's that's a really intricately choreographed scene, obviously pulls from other movies as well. Um, let me ask you this question about, because you were attuned to the Mr. White, Mr. Orange relationship. The conflict I found there was in this idea of a professional, that Mr. White is always the professional among these guys. He says it a couple of times. He pulls Mr. Pink back. Well, he says it, but he's not really. The only professional well, is really Mr. Pink. Right. Mr. Pink. He's, he's the constant professional. He actually lives what he says. And I, lo- I love that he's the guy who gets away. That's Me just too. such a great, great touch. touch. Well, if Mr. White goes about this professional sense, what is it about Mr. Orange that mm-hmm. makes him cross that line yeah. and do something hugely unprofessional right. to his own safety? I, I I like how that works for the story, but maybe that's one of the things that hung me up on putting so much weight on their relationship because I couldn't quite put those pieces together. Uh, I know we get some of the flashbacks where they have a little bit of a camaraderie, mm-hmm. no more than anybody else, I would say, yeah. in what we see. Um, but he really goes out on a limb for him. And is it tied to maybe, I was thinking that Mr. White seems to be more towards the end of this sort of career. Maybe. And he's trying to go out honorably, um, according to his sense of honor. Uh, I, I just That was the, one of the missing pieces. No. I'm with you on that. That's something I've really been thinking about a lot is there seems to be maybe one or two scenes missing that would have really sold us on the fact that he felt a kinship to him other than what we get, which obviously for me was sufficient, which is the peril of the situation and just the sheer enormity of the moment and him feeling as if 
I'm the only guy this person has. And he and does say it's his fault he says it's that his fault. he was shot, right? But if you think about it, is it really? When we see that flashback play no. out, I don't see how it is. He stops the car originally, right. but what else were they going to do? So it's interesting that he takes on that responsibility, and Tarantino doesn't really try to assert that he actually was deserving of that guilt. He's almost giving himself a, making up a reason That's what I think, attachment. and actually yeah. that's my argument, is I think he is using that to sell Mr. Pink and the others on why he's so invested okay. in him. Okay. He actually may be embellishing his story deliberately a little bit. But for whatever reason, he does feel this kinship with him. He feels a responsibility. And I just wonder if it's because he's watched him go through something that terrible. And this person is so dependent on him that he has that natural humanity, a humanity that someone like Mr. Blonde clearly doesn't have. But that whole thing actually leads me to another break that I really appreciated about this movie, a break from convention with Hollywood, but also noir, of course. And that's Tim Roth's performance as the dying, suffering Mr. Orange. Even back when I saw this originally, Josh, I had seen enough movies to expect my tough guy criminals and my Hollywood heroes to face death with dignity, right? To he squeals. Yeah, to, to be composed somewhat, even as they're enjoying their last moments here on Earth. He's terrified. Yeah. Tarantino cuts to the core of this fear of dying, the vulnerability of those moments. Go back to the 90s or any heroes you want to look to on screen. Mel Gibson, Tom Cruise, whoever else, they're not going to beg. They're not going to writhe in pain. They'd be professionals like Mr. Pink is always imploring them to be. They certainly, and you noted this, would not ask another man to hold them. And I actually found that one of my dilemmas watching this movie a little bit, something I had to keep reminding myself, is that we don't know Mr. Orange is a cop. Right. We don't know that he's acting. Yeah. They're imbued with that sense of him holding something back, but only if you've seen the movie. Mm -hmm. And if you had asked me before this rewatch... At what point in the film do we know that he's a cop? I would have said in the first 15 or 20 minutes. I thought his chapter was much earlier, but it's not. It doesn't come until like 40 or 45 minutes into the movie. I think it is after, if I'm remembering correctly, I just saw it two nights ago, I should have this, but after Mr. Orange shoots Mr. Blonde, when he saves the cop's life, that's really then we go back and tells. oh, of course, yeah, he is a cop, and we get that backstory after he reveals it. So Tarantino holds that in suspense, but watching it this time and seeing Ross's performance... I actually kept waiting for him. The way that Roth looks up at Keitel that whole time, there was this longing almost to confess something. When they first get to the warehouse. No, even before that. I think, yes, definitely there, but even in the car where he's looking up at him. And there are times where they're just making face-to-face contact when Keitel's looking over his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And it's as if he wants to tell him the truth. It wouldn't do him any good. There would be no reason for it. In fact, it would only ensure that Keitel would just drop him off at the side of the road and he'd die. But it's almost as if he does feel just this need to be honest with him in this really heightened, intense moment. Yeah. And I like the touch in that scene too, in the car. I think it doesn't Keitel like put his hand back and just kind of gives him. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of intimacy there. And that was incredibly striking. Another touch too is how about Mr. Orange shooting the woman who shoots him? Another oh, yeah. thing I didn't remember oh, yeah. at all. That is that was something, a gut punch. I yeah, remember that, that one Tarantino being like, whoa. would not miss an opportunity to do. It's a chance to show our hero, the guy we're rooting for, do something really reprehensible, but also something instinctual. 
He's shot. He shoots back. You wonder in that moment, you have to ask yourself, might I have done mm-hmm. the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. And that's another level when we do get the reveal of that. It's after we know he's a cop at yes. that point. Right. So we've already kind of put him in our corner a little bit. Uh, and then we see him do that. And we know it's one of those things he's also dealing with is the reality of that as he's going through this entire plot, still trying to get the boss in the warehouse so they can arrest him. We've talked about one or two of the performances in this film. And we've talked about Tarantino's love of performance in general, one of the things that I do love so much about his work and this film in particular. But there are multiple performances here. I can't imagine anyone doing better. And I never want to see anyone try. I relish just too many inflections and gestures and line readings. I'd start, honestly, with Michael Madsen as Blonde. Love him. I love Chris Penn, as I said, Steve Buscemi. Even Lawrence Tierney, when he gets his few lines as Joe Cabot in that gruff voice, I think are really, really good. And how about Kirk Baltz, the cop? What did you think of the cop, Josh? Because I think, for me, the scenes that really linger, the moments that really linger that I reflect on as I watch this movie again were the aftermath of that torture scene, the look of horror on his face, the way he says to Tim Roth... Marvin, Marvin Nash, just the way he says his name. And when Tim Roth says, I don't remember meeting you at all. And he says, I do just the way he says it. I can't describe it any other way than to say, I just think it's a really stark, powerful performance. I had the same thought. I think that's one of those performances you almost your mind wants you to forget because it's so hard to watch what he goes through. Mm -hmm. And you immediately set it aside and like, okay, I made it. I endured that. I don't have to think about it again. But watching it this time, it did strike me as, as really strong in bringing out because we hardly get an idea what this guy looks like. Mm-hmm. By the time we get some good shots of him, he's beaten to a pulp. Yet he still brings out the character of this guy, who he was, and just finding out that he was holding information and not giving it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, he was really strong. My MVP, though, this time was Buscemi. Yeah, I mean, I, so I just, you know, not but only because... he was because maybe my MVP then. Maybe he's the best in the whole film, and maybe that's just something you can't argue with. I mean, he's not only so good at delivering Tarantino's dialogue, and it's so quick, and it needs to be quick, because for it to sting that much and to be that instinctual, it's got to come out that fast. Mm -hmm. And he can manage to do that, but he also, again, gives you an idea of who this guy is as a character. He's not just a fast-talking guy. He is the pro, as we said. And so we see that he's— Well, Madsen, too. Yeah, well, yeah, he's yeah, <laughs> Whatever he's adopted some new code apparently since he got out of jail. But Buscemi is just again so so fast and so thinking ahead and moving quickly. And I love how he diffuses the scene between Mr. White mm-hmm. and Mr. Orange again for a purpose. I mean, every move he makes is for it goes back to his tipping. Yep talk right exactly he's, he is a man of logic and he's thought through everything that's right. and he's figured it out he knows that it makes sense to him and that's the way he's going to stick with it you don't have any idea what you're talking about these people bust their ass this is a hard job so it's working at mcdonald's but you don't feel the need to tip them do you well, why not they're serving you food but no society says don't tip these guys over here but tip these guys over here that's bullshit waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. F*** all that. (laughs) You mentioned the tipping scene, and it's funny because that whole Like a Virgin opening was, for me, the only scene in the movie I didn't really like. It was the one scene. Yeah, really. Now or when you first saw it? Now. 
Now, what? honestly, because it felt to me, think about how many great openings to movies we've seen from Tarantino where they're just conversations. And a lot of times they're really focused on just one or two people in the scene. And maybe I'm just drawn to that more than watching Tarantino then try to juggle that many players in the scene. Oh, but, but he manages it. It felt to me like a case where even though this makes no sense because the rest of the film, Tarantino's voice is loud and clear and perfectly in sync with what we've come to expect. That scene felt to me like almost an exercise. It felt to me like an acting exercise, a writing exercise. It feels a little bit too much like he's aping David Mamet, honestly, with the interjections and the random people speaking at different times. And it doesn't help that Tarantino is the one driving the scene and he's the worst actor in the film. You know what? He's the worst actor in the film, but not there. He's when you get the flashbacks of him driving. That's <laughs> really he's just driving. That's pretty bad. The poor he man's bleeding. No, he, he does not drive convincingly. But he that doesn't. opening scene, I think he's really strong. No, and I, I don't. think it feels maybe it does feel like a round table mm -hmm. because that's how it originated and that's how they might have read through the script but by the time they get it on screen everyone is hitting their beat exactly where no, it needs to be the camera is moving around to give us again that sense of I these like guys the as a group yeah and i think tarantino's really good there he's mm. playing himself you get the sense that this is probably how he talks to his friends about music and movies and so forth. But man, I thought everybody was in sync. Well, That's got to work. It's, it's gotta funny, work. but it didn't work for me. And what I did like about it, though, this time really seeing it, I wonder if you felt similarly or not, is that it sets up so perfectly this juxtaposition then with the credit sequence where you get the famous little green bag guys walking in slow motion. Mm -hmm. They're kind of the cowboys walking down the road to the, the showdown or whatever. But it's just like a strip mall. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so that's know, the funny part that. about it, right, is that you see it and you go, where are they going? Where are they? They're nowhere cool. There's nothing inherently cool about them no. as they're walking towards their cars. And we know they're not cool because we just saw that sequence and the really stupid little things they were talking about and arguing about. We know how pathetic they are. And then he gives us this kind of glory sequence of them walking. But we know that they're ridiculous. I think about the parody we get of the credit sequence in Reservoir Dogs in the movie Swingers, right, where they're mm -hmm. all walking yeah. to their cars. But it's <laughs> L.A., of course, so they're all walking to their individual cars, and there's like eight of them out there. But that was a parody of something that in some ways Tarantino was already parodying. Yeah, but the thing, so here's the thing about Tarantino, though, is he's, yes, it's all aware of that, but it is also making it cool. It so is I cool. Wouldn't, I wouldn't level. say that they were pathetic in that opening conversation because you would like to have a seat at that table. No. I mean, you'd be a the little. The guy explaining why he won't you, tip is not cool. You'd be a little, well, okay. So I don't follow that logic <laughs> and either. And Wong but and trying to remember your address he's book. He's incredibly funny in delivering his logic. So you'd, I mean, you'd, you'd be afraid they might kill you, but otherwise you'd like to be sitting there and listening to him. Good point. Well, my 1992 self wants to know what this Netflix thing is, where Reservoir Dogs <laughs> is apparently available to stream directly onto my TV or smartphone. Is this so blessed to be a movie that doesn't have to deal with smartphones? Think yeah. about how a smartphone would have ruined this film. Well, it's true, right? They can't talk to anybody. They can't just make simple phone calls. Right. They don't know where Joe is. They don't know where Nice Guy Eddie is. Of course, Reservoir Dogs is also available wherever else you stream or rent movies. If you've seen Reservoir Dogs, and we sure hope you have, once or twice or more times, and you agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, Adam, which 2015 nostalgia reboot are listeners most looking forward to this summer? We have the results of the film spotting poll next, along with our picks for the best films of 1992. If you can handle the truth, stay with us. He was born a fool for love. What he wouldn't do for love. 
He's a fool, a fool for love. She was six and he was seven. She used to send him off to heaven when she said, You are my sunshine. Party always liked the best when she teased him with a kiss and she said, You make me Hey folks, just wanted to jump in with a quick note from our sponsors this week, including A24 presenting a movie you heard us review in detail last week on the show, Ex Machina, the provocative new sci-fi thriller that has audiences and critics seduced. Manola Dargis of the New York Times calls it a critic's pick, a futuristic shocker about men, the machines they make, and the women they dream up. And Peter Travers of Rolling Stone declares you've never seen anything like it. Ex Machina is now playing everywhere. Josh, forget Peter Travers and... With all due respect, as much as I love Manola, forget her because Josh Larson called it the best film of the year so far. So far, absolutely. Yeah, so smart and uh, terrifying. And if you want to, my thought is if you want to get an idea of how the AI thing is going to go down for real, this is it. Yeah, I love this movie too. And I said it wasn't my favorite film of the year so far, but in the conversation, you know what? I've had so many conversations about the film since reviewing it with listeners and people on Letterboxd, and it continues to be so much fun to talk about and think about. That You're I moving know, it up? It's inching its way up there. I would hate to I agree with that. you. Well, I know it won't last. No, it won't. We do love Ex Machina. Again, out now in theaters everywhere, presented by A24. They do great stuff there. We're also brought to you by Harry's and harrys.com. They're fixing a problem most of us have, as we've talked about here on the show over the last year or so of having Harry's as a sponsor. Everyone has but Josh, because he doesn't need to shave every day. No. But I do. No. My sister got me a Harry set for my birthday. And I've used it. You have. And I've enjoyed it. I, I'm not using it every day. Love it. I, I don't always shave, Adam. But when, but when you I do, do, I use Harry's. <laughs> you use Harry's. Well done. I use Harry's every day and have been for at least the past six months. The problem they're solving, paying too much for overpriced razors. And this is true. I don't have the exact figure for what I've been spending on Harry's, Josh, but I know it's less than half of what I had been spending on razors. When you'd go and buy just the eight pack, use one a week, it gets you through two months. And I was dropping 25 bucks every time I bought that eight pack paying so much less with Harry's. And of course, the great thing is I don't have to go to the supermarket. I don't have to have someone open up the cabinet for me under lock and key to get those razors. They actually just deliver them to my doorstep. So just when I run out of the shave cream and I run out of blades, The package is right there for me to start using right when I need them. I use the Winston set. You can check out all their products at harrys.com slash products. You get the razor handle with the great look and feel, three razor blades, and a choice of either shave cream or foaming shave gel. The Truman set is their starter. You get all of that for just $15. And I said they come to your door. They come to your door for free. The shipping is part of that cost. You can get $5 off your first purchase. Just go to harrys.com. Use the coupon code FILMSPOTTING. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. And enter coupon code FILMSPOTTING at checkout. We thank Harry's for their support of Film Spotting. He grew up, he didn't get much better. Tattooed underneath his sweater. 
Hey, movie nerds, I'm Greta from Nerdette Podcast, and we have an epic new series for you. We're joining forces with our pal Peter Seigel to scrutinize, talk smack, and make predictions about the HBO blockbuster Game of Thrones. I like Stannis. What, what are Stannis is the Stannis? worst. I just feel like... This <laughs> is why I'm here, for these intellectual, subtle arguments. Find new recaps every Monday after new Game of Thrones episodes air. Dragons, spoilers, NPR quiz show hosts. Like we said, it's epic. Subscribe now on iTunes or catch us at wbez.org slash recaps. My name is Max. My world is fire and blood. From what I can tell from the trailers, that may be the entirety of the dialogue in Mad Max Fury Road. I guess we'll see in a couple weeks, Josh. This is Film Spotting, part of the trailer there for the highly anticipated new Mad Max starring Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron, directed by the series creator George Miller a couple weeks back. In anticipation of our review, not of Mad Max, but of Avengers Age of Ultron, which opens this weekend, and our summer movie preview, which are both coming next week, we asked you this question. Which summer 2015, quote, nostalgia reboot are you most looking forward to? So taking these franchises, whether they're actual reboots or they're sequels of a sort, whatever you want to call them, they're trading on our affection for these franchises that originated back in the 80s i think in every case Josh, yeah i think these are all 80s. choices are jurassic world mad max fury road poltergeist terminator genesis or vacation they are making another vacation chevy chase in it but not the main character your cedar rapids love ed helms is the star of this iteration of Vacation. Josh, how did it come out? What are our listeners excited about? Well, and I guess Jurassic Park, that would be 90s, but otherwise these are the 80s. All right, well, I think because you badmouthed the trailer twice on the show I can't already. can't tearing Poltergeist down. <laughs> Poltergeist is in last place, 3%, although closely followed by Terminator Genesis, 5%, which is tied with Vacation, so equal disinterest So Terminator for Genesis, those two. mostly a sequel. It's part of this series of movies poltergeist pretty much a straight-up remake right yeah although i thought someone said terminator genesis was a reboot okay let's not go there. I, it doesn't let's even, just stop does it matter <laughs> all right so up at the top it got a little bit closer in second place jurassic world 32 percent of the vote but winning it easily mad max fury road 55 percent not a surprise there florian from germany says looking at the votes in the comments i think you guys accidentally held a chris pratt versus tom hardy death match here i think he's right and i think he also cued into the fact that we're all missing film spotting madness. Boy, I don't know how long Chris Pratt would have lasted. Not very long. Geek Guardians of the Galaxy might He's have good there. coasted him past the first round, but that probably would have been it. Billy Ray Bruton in L.A. said, this poll question is a real hair puller for me. I have a morbid curiosity to see all of the films, maybe Poltergeist more so than the others, because it is the only straight-up remake in the lot. Oh, there okay. you go. And I've been a fan of director Gil Keenan since Monster House. Plus, you have a stellar cast, Sam Rockwell, Rosemary DeWitt, Jane Addams, etc. I've seen two test screenings of Mad Max Fury Road and have little doubt it's going to be epic. Think about it. Has George Miller ever ever directed a bad film. He lists them. There's some pretty good titles there. All right. He's got Mad Max, The Road Warrior, Beyond Thunderdome, The Witches of Eastwick. Never I saw it. don't recall too well. Lorenzo's Oil, never saw. Babe, Pig in the City. Now, you have to love that. That's possibly his best film. Happy Feet, 
I think I think Happy Feet was okay. He did Happy Feet too. Wow, mm. didn't make it to Happy Feet too. Let's not so make I don't know referendum. We can't, George we can't really verify your statement there, Billy Ray. Anyways, he continues. The test screenings were enthusiastically received, and I was surprised to discover that Charlie's Theron is just as much of a lead, if not more so, than Tom Hardy. And in a list that includes so many monsters and ghosts and robots and creatures, how is Chevy Chase the least human-looking of the lot? Zing. Low blow. I just read on a plane the Vanity Fair or Esquire article with Charlize Theron. Okay. And they talk about her relationship with Tom Hardy, and it was very tempestuous on the Uh set. I mean, they had this respect for each other when it was all over, but they were in a difficult situation. They didn't have a great script. I mean, they weren't working off of... Things a were really sandy. Finalized script. They were. It was the it desert. It gets every place. It gets everywhere. And <laughs> I you could know understand. What? They got a little agitated with each other. So I don't know if that will bring an added element to this film or not. Jonathan Anderson in Minot, North Dakota says, This is rough. If Fury Road is half as good as those trailers suggest, it will be hard to find something more exciting this year. But Jurassic Park is my Star Wars. I was four, soon to be five when it came out, and I was already a dinosaur nut. I learned to read because I was impatient waiting for my mom to be done helping my baby sister so she could read to me. So I I taught myself to read my dinosaur books myself. My parents collected all the McDonald's cups for me, all the toys they could find. It was the event movie for me then, and still to a large extent now. So yeah, Jurassic World's what I'm looking forward to most. We'll see how that anticipation is rewarded soon enough. Corey H. in Moscow said, I was too young to see Jurassic Park when it came out, but it was broadcast on TV at some point, and I found that I could sit at the bottom of the stairs, peek around the corner, and catch most of it while my parents sat on the couch with their backs turned. It had it all. Dinosaurs. Swearing. Samuel Jackson's bloody stump of an arm. More than one poop joke. Laura Dern. The list goes on. When I hear nostalgia, I think Jurassic Park. But I voted for Mad Max without a second thought, because I got the Mad Max trailers on repeat. Constant, y'all. Well played. I think I'm going to employ the Corey H. movie rating scale from here on out with every movie we review, as long as it has some assortment of those elements. You're going to go in with We're a checklist. Good. You need three out of the five, Poop and that's yeah, okay. to pass. Right. Laura Dern, you're good. <laughs> Michael in El Cerrito, California. Five movies enter, one movie leaves. Mad Max, even though I've been a much bigger fan of nearly all of the other franchises in my day. I've even got a giddy suspicion that some of them, Jurassic Park and Terminator in particular, could buck cynical convention and be good. Fury Road gets my vote, though, because although the road to summer glory has been well paved by dinosaurs, cyborgs, and haunted houses, I love the idea of George Miller crashing the party with a scrappy new installment of what has always been a dressed-up midnight movie series, even when it featured Tina Turner in earrings made from slinkies. Maybe especially. (laughs) How refreshing to think that a dusty saga about men wearing unlikely combinations of thongs, budo makeup, chaps, and hockey gear could rise from the nuclear ashes and steal everyone's thunder. Josh Rosenfield from Farmington, Connecticut. Mad Max is going to run away with this, and with good reason, but I want to stick up for Terminator Genesis. Given the fact that every reboot is greeted with hysterical fans of the original freaking out about the original film being ruined, I like the idea of a reboot literally going back and ruining the original. Old Arnold fighting young Arnold has an undeniable meta-significance. Call me crazy, but I'm confident that Terminator Genesis will be a better reboot than people are expecting it to be. So now we're back to it being a reboot? Well... Again, are we going to have to see this thing to find out? I was just going to say that Josh may see whether or not it turns out to be better than expected, but I don't think we are. Do you think we're going to get to this one? You have no interest in Terminator Genesis? I'd rather see Maggie, the other Schwarzenegger movie that's coming out this summer. Of course. Then Terminator Genesis. Have you seen the trailer for both films? 
Uh, Maggie no. looks way better. Wait, I think I've seen the trailer for Terminator Genesis, and I can't report whether it's a reboot or a sequel. Fair enough. That's how much attention I was paying. Well, we're going to stick with Mad Max Fury Road for our new poll question. Thank you to everyone who participated in that one. Fury Road currently on our schedule for episode 539 coming the weekend of May 22nd. So we just want to know, Mad Max Fury Road, you had me at? Mad Max, Tom Hardy, George Miller. Remember, he did Happy Feet too. The trailer. And Lorenzo's oil. <laughs> yes. Or you don't have me. Where are you going with this one, Josh? Hardy. Me too. Yeah, I had no interest till I heard he was in it, so. Maybe some interest on my part for various reasons that listeners have summarized, but really, that's it. I wasn't enough of a fan of that series when it came out originally to be that invested, to just have to be there on opening night. But Tom Hardy in a really juicy role, hopefully. Yeah, yeah I was a big fan of the series growing up, but you know, what series that you were a fan of isn't, but that's no longer special when you hear that they're going to remake, reboot, mm. sequelize something. You, it's inevitable. You just assume it's going to happen. Something died inside of you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I'm excited about we Mad Max Fury Road. what you think, why you're excited or not excited about the latest Mad Max installment. Vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment, please, like our listeners you just heard from, let us know where you're writing from. One last bit of business, Josh. We didn't discuss this. I'm just springing it on you, so I hope you're okay. okay with it. I thought we would get to maybe a little bit of bonus content tonight. We've gotten a few responses to my review, along with Michael Phillips, of It Follows, the indie ah. horror movie that most people are loving to death. Yeah. Pun intended. We need to do this. So you've now seen it. Mm-hmm. You disagree yes. with Michael and I. And we've got some feedback on both sides of the fence. Oh, really? So I thought we'd use that bonus there's, content. There's a third person who gave It Follows a bad review. At least one other. Okay. Yes. And that's all I need to feel good about it, Josh. <laughs> so we're going to get to that in the bonus content. If you've seen It Follows, if you want to hear what Josh thought of it and hear what some of our listeners thought of it, you can get our bonus content if you have the Film Spotting app. And all the information you need about the Film Spotting app is available at our website, filmspotting.net. Just click on apps right there at the top of the page. And there was a band and there was a lot of caterers. And where's the crew? I don't know. I didn't see anything. You didn't see anything, you didn't hear anything, and you don't remember anything. Look, I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, okay? But you have to believe me. I don't know anything. All right, I believe you. So who are you? Are you, you like some special forces guy or something? No, I'm just a cook. Cruz, Costner, Nicholson, Seagal. Your top box office stars of 1992. That's the last time. No more clips with Seagal. You've just done it too much in the show's history. Yeah, I know. I'm getting sick of it. I can't help but go to that well of Steven Seagal. It's top five time here on Film Spotting. This week, we continue our year-by-year countdowns with the best films of 1992. Will a Steven Seagal movie finally make the cut? It sounds like not for you, no. Josh. <laughs> Seagal starring in Under Siege there with Gary Busey and Tommy Lee Jones. And Seagal had a good year. He was one of the top box office stars of 92. Under Siege was the number 13 highest grossing movie of the year. Not bad. A few others that may or may not come up on one of our lists. Aladdin was number one. Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, number two. Batman Returns at three. Lethal Weapon 3 at number four. And A Few Good Men was the fifth highest grossing film of that year. So you think we're swimming in sequels now, but look at that, three of them in the top five. Seriously. The Best Picture winner, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which we gave the Sacred Cow treatment earlier this year on episode 525. That was prompted by American Snipers, box office success, and its Oscar nominations. The Best Actor of 
1992. Al, what kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? Pacino for mm-hmm. Son of a Woman. The best actress was Emma Thompson for Howard's End. Supporting actor, Gene Hackman in Unforgiven. Very and nice. Supporting actress, Marissa Tomei in My Cousin Vinny. With that background on the year in movies, 1992, Josh, what does your list look like? Do you have some of those box office hits on your list? Do you have some of those Oscar winners or are you kind of out there in Josh land? <laughs> Josh land, you should join me sometime. Sell tickets. It's a lovely place. Uh, no, not a lot of box office winners. Maybe an Oscar winner we'll get to a little later on my list. But right now I'm going to start with a movie that didn't get all that much attention at the time. I think it won a few Australian film awards. I don't even remember. I saw it in 92 and I don't remember how or why, but it must have come to the U.S. in some form. It's proof. And this is from writer-director Jocelyn Morehouse. It features Hugo Weaving and a really young Russell Crowe. Weaving plays this bitter and mistrustful blind man who takes photographs and then he asks people to describe what they depict. His housekeeper, played by Genevieve Picot, has an unrequited crush on him and she takes photographs of him for herself. And when he won't respond in kind, she arranges the furniture to mess with him and plays all these other little games. So it's a very dysfunctional relationship between these two, but a fascinating one. And into it comes Crow's Andy, who becomes friends with Weaving after describing some of his photographs for him, but then he eventually becomes a pawn in these mind games that are going on in the house. It's interesting, especially now to see Crow as something other than the dominant force in a movie, which is what we always, at least I, think of him as being. But he's really not here. He's quite good, though. Um, Obviously not as arresting as he was in what would be his next film, Romper Stomper. That's the one that I really remember getting him a lot of international acclaim. Proof is more of this evocative little chamber drama. In some ways, it does remind me of Ex Machina, which we just reviewed in that it's mainly about these three people in this largely confined setting. But it's an interesting exploration of who we trust, why we trust them. And I do like how it uses photography and blindness as effective cinematic metaphors. Hmm. I have not seen proof. So I will just have to take your word for it, despite any evidence. My number five also prominently features a crow, though it is not Russell Crowe, but the writer-director Cameron Crowe and his movie Singles. This is a movie that Crowe himself is generally pretty down on. I revisited some interviews of his earlier today from the AV Club and Salon back maybe 10, 15 years ago, and he felt this movie was his least successful. I do wonder if maybe some of his failings since then would alter that perspective we bought a, a zoo bit. yeah I'm maybe thinking. might be in there even a movie like elizabeth town which i think for a lot of people was a bit of a disappointment but for him it mainly has to do with some of the casting i'm very curious which roles he thought were miscast he doesn't specify of course and also his big concern was the timing of the release of the movie because it was a case where he was doing this film about the seattle music scene and these young people in the early 90s in Seattle, trying to establish themselves and figure out who they are and what they stood for, and also deal with various romantic situations. And he was doing that before Nirvana broke and Nevermind came out, and it became fashionable to be into the Seattle grunge scene. But the studio sat on it for a while and then tried to capitalize on that later. And so it looked like Crow, maybe by extension, was trying to exploit that. But maybe this is why, Josh, in reading some of his comments, I like the movie Singles so much. He says, what Singles was always meant to be was Manhattan set in Seattle. Hmm course i do love woody allen and that film in particular but you can see that connection an ensemble movie about dating and dating in a particular time and place where the city itself is truly another character in the movie he says he was never aspiring to make 
a picture that defined a generation. And I didn't feel that way as a high school kid watching singles for the first time. Noel Murray from The Dissolve recently wrote about singles. I was curious how people, looking back on it now, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it, but how does someone in 2014 or 2015 look back on a movie that might feel dated, such as singles? And he says... If anything, the reason it's more likable with each passing year is that it's very much from its time. The film is ostensibly about two Seattle couples and their closest friends and how they try to advance their careers, forge satisfying relationships, and become actual adults while still clinging to their college habits of hanging out at coffee shops and rock shows. But in 2015, Singles is really about the cordless phone with the expandable antenna, the wristwatch, the store's phone numbers, the personal fax machine, the video dating service, the soul patches, the mud honey t-shirt, the safe sex party, and the dozens of other products, fashion choices, and pieces of technology to keep the story stuck in 1991. It's also about some aspects of being young and plugged in that haven't changed. Hand stamps at nightclubs, shouting at friends long after a loud concert is over, showing off an awesome record collection to a date, bonding over social activism, and covering apartment walls and corkboards with posters, postcards, and ticket stubs. It's those moments like that that make Crow's work so rewarding because he gets those little tidbits and those little nuggets of life in the modern world. I think about a movie like Elizabethtown and that late night conversation those characters have on the phone, Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst, and during our review talking about how much we remember those types of conversations when you're young and just falling in love and staying up all night. Now, Noel even acknowledges the movie's a bit of a mess, and what he means there is the way it tries to use these vignettes and chapter headings and the opening credits are kind of a documentary style with footage of lovers in Seattle, and then you've also got, at times, a direct address to the camera. It's a hodgepodge of styles, but I guess that was part of the charm of the movie for me. Then, all these sort of cast-off parts, like the characters themselves, who nevertheless come together and connect with each other. If I have any kind of news of any kind, something good, something nice that I want to share with you or something, mm -hmm. I will knock four times, okay? It's going to be our secret code. Okay? How? What? How? How what? How will you knock? Okay. Take care of yourself, Steve. Please. You know, in a parallel universe, we're probably a scorching couple. But in this one, neighbors. I do remember the timing feeling a little weird when it did come out for the reasons that you talked about. But maybe it's a movie that does work better now as a time capsule mm -hmm. instead of part of a trend that it really, like you said, wasn't really trying to be. My number four is a film that I didn't see in 1992, but rather recently. It's Brothers Keeper, this really unnerving documentary. It's directed by Bruce Sanofsky and Joe Berlinger, and it involves a 1990 murder case with these four older hermit-like brothers who lived on a farm in upstate New York. Delbert Ward, one of the brothers, was accused of smothering his older brother in his sleep in order to spare him from the painful illness that the brother had been suffering. Yet, as the documentary goes on and the investigation unfolds, more questions seem to arise. Was Delbert maybe coerced into confession by police? That's one possibility. Or maybe this was just a simply a natural death in unusual circumstances, the way these brothers lived. Or there are hints that maybe something even more sinister than a mercy killing might have happened. So 
the question for me with documentaries we've talked a couple of times often has to do with exploitation of the subjects themselves. And especially my antenna went up for this because these brothers are so unsophisticated, uneducated that you do wonder, okay, uh, how are the filmmakers going to relate to them as people, as subjects? What are the lines that may be crossed here? But as the movie went on, it became clear that really exploitation was one of the themes that the filmmakers were interested in. They do want to explore whether the authorities exploited Delbert and uh, his apparent mental deficiencies. He was kind of an, an easy suspect for them. It's also very clear that the townsfolk and also the local news use Delbert's case to grab their own moment in the sun. And what's fascinating to watch is how there's especially one neighbor who they do that under the guise of helping Delbert. And he is a help to him. But at the same time, you can also see him really enjoying that he's getting to be somewhat of a spokesperson for them. And this is what the movie left me with. Just a question, but a really shuddering question is whether or not Delbert himself might have been exploiting this country bumpkin stereotype that was being put upon him to cover his own guilt. Hmm. So, so many fascinating things going on here in Brothers Keeper. Yeah, Brothers Keeper is another one, Josh. You're two for two on movies I haven't seen, but I've seen some other Berlinger and Sanofsky documentary work, and that's one I've been meaning to catch yeah, up with. Yeah, I think for a this would be time. right up your alley. All right. My number four, obviously, right up my alley. I will be very brief here because I actually already just invoked Woody Allen with this list, plus. This film from 1992, Husbands and Wives, came up last just a few weeks ago during our conversation about While We're Young, the latest movie from Noah Baumbach. It also made my top five mockumentary moments, which was just a month or two ago here on the show. But it is Husbands and Wives at number four. I realize this also would have been a good candidate for a midlife crisis movie when we did that top five in conjunction with While We're Young. You've got two couples here with their marriages in upheaval, Judy Davis and Sidney Pollock and Mia Farrow and Woody Allen. Pollock starts seeing a young blonde astrology nut. I think she might be like a yoga instructor. It's kind of a cliche role in that way, unfortunately. But Alan also falls a bit for one of his writing students, played by Juliette Lewis. This is, for me, Josh, a movie that's in that second tier of Woody movies with Bullets Over Broadway and Purple Rose of Cairo and Matchpoint and a few others, movies that I really like but are behind the essentials like Annie Hall, Hannah and Her Sisters, Manhattan, and Crimes and Misdemeanors. But I see its marks everywhere. Woody is a guy who's actually been somewhat experimental. If you think about a movie like Zelig and the way he uses black and white in sure. Manhattan, he does try different forms. And this was his first foray into that verite style, the handheld shaky camera. And there are those moments where they're directly addressing the camera, but you never really know who's interviewing them or why. And I see its marks everywhere since seeing Husbands and Wives in 92, not just while we're young. I could probably come up with 20 other movies that directly reminded me of husbands and wives and the way they use that specific conceit. So I think like a lot of his films, it's been fairly influential over the years and it is one I enjoy. My number four. It's also a Woody Allen that I have yet to see. So add that to my list of I his. I think you'll hate it. Yeah? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm open to really liking his stuff, but it's on that end of... I do. Okay. I think you'll find it just overbearing and... Ah. Okay. Well, thanks for the warning. I'll get to some other ones first. <laughs> All right. We'll be back with our final picks for the best films of 1992. I'm still holding out hope for my cousin Vinny on your list, Adam. The film spotting top five continues next. Stay with us.
Donations coming up here in a second and some great comments from listeners as we are wont to share in this part of the show, Josh, from time to time. But we also wanted to highlight a film spotting meetup that is coming up and it will not involve you or myself. And that's probably a good thing for the best. (laughs) These people are much more interesting than us. I am speaking specifically of Candace Griffiths, who is one of our longtime listeners, one of our longtime associate producers she's earned that title over the years being so involved with the show really since 2006 or 7 i think she's been assisting in various ways and sean gilman who i like to refer to as the dean of the film spotting forum one of the members of the hallowed film spotting advisory board he lives in seattle and candace is going to be doing some traveling to the pacific northwest around july 1st so on july 1st they have thrown it out to the forum they have asked us to throw out here on the show for people to sign up and be part of this event. They say it's all going to be family-friendly. They want lots of people to attend. Basically, the lineup is they're going to go to an afternoon screening at Grand Illusion Cinema in the University District of Seattle. That's around 2 p.m. Then they'll have a meetup nearby at 4, and then have some kind of dinner of pizza or burgers at 6 p.m. So even if you can't come to the screening or do all of that, you can still maybe join up for the meetup or for dinner after that. If you want to RSVP, you can contact Candace, Candace at filmspotting.net to be added to the list and be counted for the screening or any of the other events going on, or just go to the forum. There is a local events and meetups board there on the forum, and you can post and add your name to the events. They are inviting all film spotters and their families, no matter where they lived, if you're in driving distance. It sounds like a great time. I want to go to Seattle. I know. We're talking about doing a live show on the we road. At some point, and we've talked about Seattle. Seattle. Yeah, well, we could do it. We can't do it this, July 1st. This state doesn't work. No, huh? it doesn't work for us, but All we'll right. link to that forum. We'll link to the board for local events and meetups in our show notes if you want a direct route to it. We really do hope to hear great things and maybe see some pictures posted on the forum as well. Let's get to our donors, Josh. We want to say thank you to Joseph in Burke, Virginia, Benjamin in Honolulu, Hawaii, Sonny in Gonzales, Louisiana. Louisiana, and Jake Bell in San Diego. I've been freeloading for almost a year now, and I use that word as more than a joke because your show has provided me a long-missed filter for choosing the films in which to invest my time. Work gets in the way of being that late 30s guy auditing film classes at the local university. I want to thank you for mentioning Goodbye to Language in 3D a few months back. I haven't seen a Godard film in years, and I don't think I've understood a Godard film ever, but I love the 3D in certain films. I watched the Godard Blu-ray and was promptly confounded and overjoyed at taking in the film in 3D. So 
thank you for the small mentions like that. Those tidbits are invaluable for films that I would never otherwise think to watch. Oh, and the $10 donation today is a direct result of Josh mentioning the house in a single man in this week's top five. The film is far from perfect, but that use of the mid-century modern home somehow highlighted the melancholy and loneliness that Firth's character deals with. The film would not be anywhere close to what it was without that house. Keep up the great work. Your show is one of the highlights of my commute each week. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Jake. Some Silver Club donors, Bill in Woodbridge, Virginia, who says, I've been listening since the Cinecast days and figured it was time to pay up. Plus, Michael Loker in El Cerrito, California. We heard from Michael during our poll comments. He sent us a note here. We're going to read some of it, Josh. He talks about a story where he and his wife, they were living in New York City a few years ago. They went to a reading by Tom McCarthy, the British novelist and artist, and part of it was also a screening. And he chose Max Ophel's Letter from an Unknown Woman, which we've reviewed on the show as part of our Max Ophel's Marathon, but he wasn't familiar with at all at the time he saw it. Michael says, anyways, the beautiful movie haunted me for years, though I never thought to seek out Ophel's and investigate the rest of his catalog. Until now, that is. Waiting through your awesome archive has yielded name drop after name drop, reminding me of the great director and pointing me towards essentials like the earrings of Madame De. As a freelance artist myself, I'm a theatrical set designer, I feel indebted to the books and movies that stir my imagination. Film spotting reminds me of this, and it conjures the best late-night conversations I've ever had with friends, hashing out a recent film or play, only with a level of sophistication and focus we rarely achieved at the local Irish knockoff watering hole. <laughs> really have never felt as in touch with my artist's gut as I have since discovering film spotting. You guys have reminded me what it means to passionately chew the dramatic fat. Michael goes on as an obsessive, if relatively new listener, I decided long ago that I'd try contributing, but finding the right moment has been tricky. Even with a good degree and a fair amount of success, the pay in this field sucks and diapers are expensive, but I just cashed a good size fee. So here, accept this modest offering until I decide to switch to a more lucrative industry or figure out how to better game the system. How could I not contribute? I'm giddy over having coined the nickname the FAS. I've made my mark world <laughs> take that. So there you go. All you people who were just abhorred at that nickname, The Fast. It's Michael's fault. Play Michael. He, he does say that the book that he went to hear a reading of, Tom McCarthy's book C, is highly recommended. It's available on Audible and read by Stephen Hoy. So there you go. If you're looking for an Audible recommendation, thank you, Michael, for that and all your great comments. We have a new Buck a Show donation from longtime listener. Our friend David L. Williams, who says, I'm looking past the vroom, vroom, look at the fast cars go episode and paying the dealer with my buck a show donation for the year. For those film spotting listeners who are looking for fast and furious theater, my show The Starving is now playing at the Barter Theater in Abingdon, Virginia. Noted thespian Vin Diesel is not, however, part of the cast. Your loss, was that, David. <laughs> was that pretty much the summary of our critical judgment of the Fast and Furious movies. Well, I think that movies, that's all we said, minutes. right? Vroom, vroom. Vroom. <laughs> a new $5 a month donor, Melissa G. in L.A., and a gold-level donor, Rich Yates, Denton, Texas, though he says, I'm from Illinois originally, don't tell anybody. This is to catch up to the dealer, missed last year, more importantly, to challenge all my other Texas residents to add to the push for an Austin trip. Oh, here we Texas go. Texas loves film spotting, and our needs must be met. Mm. We're talking about it. It's in the works, Rich. More details, maybe, 
to come here soon. That brings us to one last bit of feedback we wanted to read. Chris Sweet Sanctimony Pie, a.k.a. Chris Fry. Yep, I'm one of the few, the proud, the blessed with a Sam Van Halgren nickname. He writes in with a little plug of his own, well worth our listeners' time if they're in the area, and some nice thoughts. Dear Adam and Josh, after listening to the 10th anniversary show, I wanted to write and say thanks for all you, Maddie and Sam, have meant to my love of film. As a matter of fact, I can pinpoint the show as being a primary inspiration for starting Foot Candle Film Society in Western North Carolina back in February 2008. Foot Candle meets once a month and discusses a film that otherwise wouldn't make it to the area. Over the years, we've been able to screen films like I'm Not There, Take Shelter, A Serious Man, and The Great Beauty, all with a lively discussion with our members following the screening. One of the long-term goals of the society has always been to hold a film festival. After seven years and a membership of over 500 people. 500. That's We helped fantastic. inspire this. They're watching these movies, and there's 500 people. That's a huge turnout. Crazy. Myself and fellow co-founder Alan, also an avid film spotting listener, he actually introduced me to the show, have decided to take the plunge. Can you please give our first year fledgling festival the film spotting bump? The festival will be held in Hickory, North Carolina from September 25 to 27, and we're trying to get the word out to as many filmmakers as possible. For more information, they can go to our website, that's Foot candle.org and get details on how to submit their work. Thanks and keep up the great work. We'll of course link to footcandle.org as well in our show notes at filmspotting.net and we'll plug this a couple more times as we get closer to September. I hope all the young filmmakers out there will choose to participate and send something to the fest. We'll have to talk about it Josh but I think film spotting should put up one of the prizes for this film. Makes sense. I think we can do that. Finally, to $10 a month subscribers, two new ones, Lindsay P. in Chicago and in New York, New York, Chang Jai Ho. I hope I did that justice. Thank you so much to all of our donors and everyone who makes film spotting happen. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello to Adam, Josh, Sam, and all the listeners of Film Spotting Original Recipe. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, inviting you to join us for a little trip to Hollywood. No, we're not actually going to California. We're much too cheap and lazy for that. We're talking about movies about the dark side of show business. That's all inspired by our latest listener's choice review for the new indie horror movie Starry Eyes about a young actress whose big break comes at a terrible cost. To listen to the show, find us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing our top five films of 1992 this week, inspired by our Sacred Cow review earlier in the show of Reservoir Dogs. But we actually initiated these year-by-year countdowns at least a couple years ago, maybe three or four here on the show. We started with 2004 before the show began in 2005 and have been kind of slowly working our way back through the years. We've danced around a little bit, especially Not when in we chronological have, order. Yeah, especially when we have a good sacred cow to discuss. For example, we've already done the top five films of 1991, but we haven't done 92 yet. So we dance around a little bit. You can find all of those annual lists, by the way, if you go to filmspotting.net and click on top fives. We are ready to share 
our top three picks. Josh, what do you have? My number three is a nostalgia pick. We're sort of allowed these, right, when we do these year-by-year picks. I think this list is all about nostalgia. (laughs) Well, I try to see new stuff, too, if I can. But in this case, it's something that I loved then, haven't seen since. I do really hope... It holds up. It's honeymoon in Vegas. Now, for some reason, it doesn't. I haven't seen it. You watched it recently? No. Uh, in fact, I've never seen it. Oh, three I for three, Josh. <laughs> Are you going to pick something I've seen? This is one. I'll, I'll get there. Yeah, this is one I, I almost don't want to revisit because I fear that it won't hold up. But what, don't ask me how. For some reason. Considering I was a senior in high school at the time, I was a big fan of writer-director Andrew Bergman. Now, he's got some credentials. He was a screenwriter on Blazing Saddles, Fletch, so a little little bit of credibility there. And I do love Blazing Saddles. And I actually loved his 1990 film, The Freshman, this mob comedy with Matthew Broderick and, I kid you not, Marlon Brando, if you remember that this even exists. I do. He's a film student. All right. So a big fan of that. So I was all ready for Honeymoon in Vegas, at least in 1992, it delivered. Nicolas Cage plays a recently engaged gambler who loses a ton of money to James Caan. Khan says he'll forgive the debt if he gets a weekend with Cage's fiance, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. And believe me, this whole indecent proposal setup. Yeah, I was just going to say, I like this movie better <laughs> no, when it's no, a decent proposal. No. It's better played as comedy, trust me. How could you put me in this position? What do you think? I knew it was coming. I wanted this to happen. I was completely blindsided. Jack, I still don't understand this. You went in there with $500, right? We had this whole discussion. I had a straight flush. Hey, how you doing? Do you know what a straight flush is? It's like unbeatable. Like unbeatable is not unbeatable. Hey, I know that now, okay? Don't yell at me! I hate this place! Now, this is one of, if not the, at least as I remember it, definitive Nick Cage performances. He's unhinged, yet utterly charming. He's always hilarious. And it's it's breathless, but before that desperation would set in, which is what we've gotten off and on in, well, for quite a while now. So there's no hint of that. Yet here, Khan is great. It's a little bit of a comic preview of what he does in Bottle Rocket. And Sarah Jessica Parker, she just has this wonderful screwball presence. Adam, it also, this will sell you on it. The movie climaxes with the flying Elvises, these professional skydivers who mm-hmm. dress up like Elvis jump out of a plane. So surely it earns a spot on this list <laughs> just for that. I'll add that to my new rating scale for yes. movies. Where Along with Laura Dern and the poop. Right. And <laughs> Samuel I mean. Jackson's bloody arm stump? Was Why that not? It? Okay. Why not, Josh? we got to mix it up a little bit. Okay, so you're going to love this. I do have a little bit of a disclaimer before we get to my top three. A cheat or a disclaimer? No, not a cheat, but a little bit of a cheat in that, yeah, it's a cheat because okay. I'm going to end up mentioning <laughs> okay. more movies than five. But oh, even though we talked about this, we talked about this ahead of time, I couldn't get you to buy in. But sometimes oh, you want to set aside. I want to set okay. aside certain yeah, yeah. movies that whether they've been talked about too much or they're just too obvious. Sometimes I feel like that's just not fun listening. It's not fun for me to even prepare for. And you like to have multiple lists. And I like to cheat. But in this case, I think you'll forgive me, Josh, because for me, there are three movies from 1992 that are not just so obviously, for me, the best three movies that year. If I was making a list of my top five films of the 1990s, these three movies would be in the top ten and all three would be in conversation for the top five. All right. So it just seems a little bit absurd. So you're putting all three of them in this number? I'm just setting them aside. I'm oh, just you're setting them aside. Okay. I'm just that these three movies are not in my top five. So what that means is the first two movies you've heard me list so far with this top five are not actually my five and four, but are my eight and seven. Okay. And the three movies you're going to hear in a moment are not my one through three, but actually my six, five, 
and four. Does okay. that make sense? I, sure. Just slide everything sure. back a little bit because these are the top three hands down. They are the movie we talked about earlier, Reservoir Dogs. Okay. They are the last 1992 movie we did a Sacred Cow review of, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, mm-hmm. and Glengarry Glenn Ross. There it is. The David okay. Mamet film. Glengarry and Reservoir Dogs are already in the film spotting pantheon, so clearly they're beloved and they're masterpieces and belong there. Unforgiven is not in the film spotting pantheon, but it probably should be yeah, based on we gotta the review get that we in gave there. it. So... Those three movies I've now set aside, not on my list, my current number three, Your number 48A is... My number six? I don't know. No. My number number four. No. I can't keep track of it anymore. Just say the title. It's One False Move. It has a number in the title. Oh, nice. One False Move. Now, this is But it's at number three. Okay. Yeah. Not a movie I saw in 1992 because, like most of the world, it was this low-budget movie. It went straight to home video. Carl Franklin, first time feature director. Nobody really knew who he was. It didn't have any big name stars in it. Billy Bob Thornton's in it and co-wrote it, but he wasn't a name at this point. Bill Paxton was the biggest name in the movie. It did get a little bit of buzz when Siskel and Ebert went a little nuts for it. Gene yep, Siskel actually had that's it what I remember. as his favorite movie of 1992. Ebert had it at number two, and we'll come back to that here in just a second. The movie, as I said, stars Thornton as one of three criminals. There's this boss character named Pluto, played by Michael Beach, who if you saw his face, you'd know him from other things, but you wouldn't necessarily he's place guy. the name. Yeah, he's one of that guy's, but he's just a psychopath and really chilling, too. It's a great performance. There's also Fantasia, who is one of the three criminals in this. And yeah, the plot is something I don't want to get too bogged down in, but they end up having to leave town. They get out of L.A. after some murders and head to Houston, but the... LAPD is now on their trail, and they discover that they might be heading for Star City, Arkansas. That's where Bill Paxton comes in. He's the sheriff, the seemingly kind of podunk, hick sheriff named Dale Hurricane Dixon. As I mentioned, Ebert had it as his number two film of the year, and with all due respect to Siskel, I think Ebert waxed more eloquently about the film. He says, one of the unique qualities of the screenplay and Franklin's direction is that this is a film where the principals are three black people and three white people, and yet the movie is not about black-white relationships in the dreary way of so many other recent movies, which are motivated either by idealistic bonhomie or the cliches of ethnic stereotypes. Every character in this film, black and white, operates according to his or her own agenda. That's why we care so very much about what happens to them. I think he's right about those character dynamics as a key to the success of this movie and how the screenwriters Thornton and Epperson and Carl Franklin as the director explore them. It's a really tense crime movie, but all of the suspense is driven really by what we know about the characters, what they know about each other, and then all the things both of those parties don't know about each other and what is slowly revealed over the course of the movie. All of our assumptions are constantly being subverted, I think, in really interesting ways. I think Paxton is great. I mentioned Michael Beach, who plays Pluto. Basically, if you haven't seen One False Move, but you liked Blood Simple and Fargo from the Coen Brothers yeah. and maybe liked A Simple Plan, which I didn't like quite as much, the Sam Raimi movie, if oh, I that's a great correctly, one then you need to see One False Move. It's just a must-see. I remember checking it out because of those Siskel and Ebert reviews. Yeah, I'd, I thought we might have some crossovers on our lists, and I almost put this. It's an honorable mention, probably maybe my number six or seven. I wouldn't have guessed it was this one, so great pick. All right, number two is The Crying Game. I had star Jay Davidson on my list of top five performances by non-professionals. That was on episode 486, and I talked there about how this movie did send out, at the time, this cultural shock wave for the way 
way it subversively explored gender identity. And it did it essentially by selling the audience one thing and then delivering another. Stephen Ray is the IRA operative here who gets involved with Davidson's character named Dill. Dill's the girlfriend of a British soldier that Ray had previously helped kidnap. And then as the movie goes on, Ray discovers that Gil's a transgender woman. The director, Neil Jordan, he serves both the genre requirements, this is very much a thriller, as well as these relationship realities. So he manages to make this really romantic and tragic. And talk about ahead of its time. I mean, this past weekend, we just had Bruce Jenner making headlines for the ABC interview discussing his own transgender identity. Here was a major movie way back in 1992, a Best Picture Oscar nominee for that matter, that was already sensitively exploring such a topic. So Crying Games, my number two. You just spoiled it for me. <laughs> Come on. This is supposed to be a secret, Josh. I don't care that it's we, been 23 we years. We spoiled the end of Reservoir Dogs. Yes, now we we're did. spoiling the crying game. We're just, we're reckless. Yeah, and I've seen the crying game, so I'm glad I finally actually watched one of your picks. And it's a movie I like, but wasn't really a contender for me for this list, despite having 15 choices for my top five. <laughs> my number two, maybe very obviously, Josh, is Robert Altman's The Player. Maybe going back to our Reservoir Dogs discussion and the concept of meta-ness. I had to have this movie on this list, especially if you consider how much over the years I've praised certain movies about movies. And this was a film I had seen before multiple times, but rewatched fairly recently in the context of one of my classes where we were talking about movies about movies. And I want to say we watched it just after Sunset Boulevard, the Billy Wilder film, because both movies really deal with writers, of course, and the death of writers and how the two different filmmakers explore those. And what's interesting about the Hollywood we get in the player is they're hearkening back to the glory days. Well, those glory days were the times that we see depicted in the present of Sunset Boulevard. And even in that movie, they're hearkening back to the glory days that came before. There's always a better time. Another There's time. always a golden age, right? And what we see, though, in the player in the 80s, and this certainly hasn't changed, is that at least back in the Sunset Boulevard days that we see there, they're still talking about movies. They are still talking about pictures as much as they're talking about stars and everything else. In the player, it's been reduced to just making deals. And yeah. somehow he still makes that compelling. It's all about politics. It's about status. Griffin Mills, played by Tim Robbins. He's our protagonist here as one of these studio execs. It's all about one-upsmanship, and that's how movies are made. It becomes this process of selling backwards from the audience to the star and the genre, and then to the script. And another connection is you look at Sunset Boulevard, and the Joe Gillis character, played by William Holden, makes it seem as if to entertain the masses was somehow slumming. And here we see what the writers are reduced to in the player. It's all about just groveling. They're just constantly in a state of pitching. Griffin. Griffin, hi. Griffin, hi. Adam Simon. I know we're not supposed to meet till next week, but a lot of you come down this one. I we're meeting next well, week. yeah, I just wanted to plant the seed in your head just now, just so that, you know, we could. So I'm booked up. I okay, can't well, hear a picture. Okay, well, just picture this. Right picture this. Okay, it's a planet in the far, far future. It's a planet with two suns. Who plays the sun? No, no, no. Suns. Large solar disks. Listen, you got to run this idea by Bonnie. Obviously, there's a lot of Hollywood satire going on here, and deservedly so. But at the same time, I just think it's a well crafted movie with some great cinematic moments that you would expect from Robert Altman. And I've always remembered that. Jonathan Rosenbaum, formerly of the Chicago Reader. I knew 
that he hated this movie because it had come up in other conversations about other films or just over the years and reading his reviews. But I'd never actually looked at his review or tried to understand why. And just for kicks, I went to Rotten Tomatoes to see if it was reflected there. It turns out it's reflected all right. It wasn't you this time, Josh Larson, spoiling. He's the only one? A perfect 100%. It's a 98% because he's the only critic out of 53 who took down the player. And boy, did he ever... I will link to it if you really want to dive yeah, I'm into check this. That out. Yeah, Rosenbaum, a fascinating writer, great thinker about movies. One line I'll read, the player is portentous and snide too, but for once Altman has hit on a subject that his audience enjoys feeling portentous and snide about, the Hollywood that we all take so seriously. Huh. He's a big fan of other Altman films and was very disappointed by this movie. I think if I did the math right, or if Microsoft Word did the math right when I copied it over to check, it's 3,800 words. Whoa. A 3,800-word <laughs> review of The Player. Like I said, if you're curious, I'll link to it in our show notes. I love The Player. Jonathan Rosenbaum is probably right, and I'm probably wrong, but I don't care. It's my number two film of 92. Well, it was an honorable mention for me, and I think that it had to have been my first Altman film. And wasn't that one of one of his comebacks, right? Mm-hmm. That, that kind of kicked him into a, sure. a significant phase of his career. So yeah, that sort of opened the door for Altman for me. me so yeah, it's a soft spot in my heart for that. My number one is, I'm going to repeat myself, it's Unforgiven. It's so good, so ahead of the class, even for 1992, that I had to put it at number one. The Sacred Cow Review we just did confirmed that for me. It did help me to see Eastwood as this craftier, savvier filmmaker that I think he's given credit for a lot of times and another reason i think american sniper though it's flawed should shouldn't be dismissed so since i've talked about it i did find a review as well this one comes from dave kerr another chicago critic writing for the chicago tribune in 1992 he actually agrees with us adam about the ending and how that works this you mean is like the rest of the world <laughs> well, against michael phillips well, i wasn't gonna name <laughs> michael but yes and, and he also places it interestingly enough alongside such classics as the searchers and rio bravo here's what he said unforgiven is no complacent fable of moral redemption though money begins as one of the best adjusted and most socially integrated heroes of eastwood's career he ends it as a monster as a barroom confrontation turns into an appalling massacre. The motivation is no longer profit but loyalty, though such nuances no longer seem to matter. Violence is as devastating to its perpetrator as to its victim, regardless of its justification. So that was one of the revealing things in this revisit is how much that really did hit home. So best film of 1992 for me, Unforgiven. Yeah. No argument from me, obviously. I think it would be there in the conversation with the Reservoir Dogs. And if I'm really being honest and judging the best picture and not the one I have the most high nostalgic feelings for, I'd probably go Unforgiven. We didn't clear this with our producer, Sam, ahead of time. This may be a problem, but I think we can be rebels here. And I said, it's so good I exempted it from this list. Let's just go Wait, ahead. You're going to put, you're it, gonna in put it in the pa- I'm not dressed for this. Aren't you ready for it? <laughs> oh, no. There's a it whole ceremony. There. All right, fine. There. Put it in. Play. Let's play the theme music. And so, Theodore Donald Karabatsos, in accordance with what we think your dying wishes might well have been, we commit your final mortal remains to the bosom of the Pacific Ocean, which you love so well.
Unforgiven bestowed in the pantheon where it belongs. My number one is a movie that I tried to fight a little bit. And what I mean is initially I had it lower on my list and then it kept inching its way up and I had it behind the player as number one. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's no reason to fight it. It just belongs in this spot. And because you haven't mentioned it, maybe it will be an honorable mention, but you haven't said anything. I had these rhetorical questions planned. Now they don't have to be rhetorical. You can actually try to answer them. What's not amazing about Spike Lee's Malcolm X? Hmm. The size and scope of it. We talk so much about biopics that try to cover a whole life, even if Malcolm X's life was cut tragically short. They rarely work. They either cram in way too much or not enough of the right stuff and too much of the wrong stuff. But the production design, the cinematography, Lee's direction, the writing, the performances, starting with Denzel Washington, of course, and just the vitality of it, making the struggle being depicted then seem just as revealing about the time it was made and about the time we live in now. Back in February, actually, when Selma was a hot topic of discussion, The Guardian published a piece saying Lee's biopic is still as necessary as ever and asks in there if a Hollywood film so supportive of a radical black figure could be made today on that grand a scale. And unfortunately, they decide probably not. It probably wouldn't happen. And I don't want to overreach here, but part of the reason I have such fondness for this movie and I want to put it at number one is because it was an important movie for me to see it in 1992 as a high school kid growing up in a small town in Iowa. And no, I did not grow up on a farm or anywhere near a farm, but I didn't have much exposure to African-American people. I didn't really know who Malcolm X was other than, yes, he was a historically significant American figure. He was a black civil rights leader. He was more militant than MLK and that he was assassinated. I basically knew the very basics of his life to get a sense of the environment he came from, the environment in which he was fighting for equality, to see his personal journey from street hustler to this figure within the nation of Islam, to the leader he became, how his views on virtually everything changed or evolved over the course of his life. That was fascinating to me. And I was entertained by Malcolm X. It was absolutely not a history lesson. It was compelling drama the whole way through, but I learned a lot from watching Malcolm X. I became at least a little bit more culturally sensitive and aware because of seeing this Spike Lee film. Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy as the future looked black. Pretty good with them words, ain't you? Soiled with dirt, foul, sullen, hostile, Forbidding as a black day, foully or outrageously wicked as black cruelty, indicating disgrace, dishonor, or culpability. And there's others black male, black ball, black guard. Yeah, well, there's some more, right? Let's look up white. Here. Read. White. Of the color of pure snow, uh, reflecting all the rays of the spectrum, the opposite of black. Uh, free from spot or blemish. Innocent. Pure. Huh. Yeah, it's honorable mention for me, and the only reason it isn't higher is because this is one I really, really want to revisit. Since I've seen Malcolm X, and I was right there for it because 
after Do the Right Thing and seeing such an exciting filmmaker, as you said, getting this chance, like essentially getting the reins of Hollywood to do what he wanted now. And he decided to do Malcolm X. What could that be? Went to see it right away. Loved it. But since I've grown so weary of biopics that that is the question for me. And if you've seen it more recently, maybe you can answer is how did Spike's style mold that biopic formula that I've become so tired of. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm sure that he did do amazing things with it, but in my mind I remember it as a biopic and so it's hard for me to to move it up higher, you know, without being able to look at it with fresh eyes. Sure. But certainly yeah, one of one of the best films of 1992. Those are our top 5 films of 1992. Josh, did you have any other movies you wanted to honorably mention? So Reservoir Dogs probably would have been in my top 10, even though I did have those quibbles that we talked about. Batman Returns, really good sequel. And Porco Rosso is one I just caught up, one of the Hayao Miyazaki films I'd never seen. Watched this last week. Sweet, unassuming, liked it a lot. Not quite top five or even maybe top 10 material for me, though. And I do want to list my regrets as well. The struggle we've talked about with these lists is that, you know, even though we're looking at these years Many years later, we're not able to catch up with everything that came out. And there are titles that we've heard about since that have become acclaimed. And here are some of those. Life and Nothing More. That's a Kiarostami film that I, just I couldn't it. even get. A, did you? Where'd you get your copy? Facets. Right here oh, in Chicago. Good they thinking. also have the film that is part and parcel with that movie called Where the Friend Yep. Is, I believe, is that the title. sounds right. Something like that. I'm sorry, I don't have it off the tip of my tongue. But that's the movie that the Kiarostami character is making. And then when he goes back in Life and Nothing More to find the characters who were involved in an earthquake, they were in that movie, there the you first go. movie he was making. So, of course, it's one of those meta films in that way, like you'd expect. Yeah, so that one I couldn't get my hands on in time. Leos Carax's Lovers on the Bridge I wanted to watch. Couldn't yeah, get to that. I don't know if that's a 92 film. That opens up to that some of the foreign where, ones it's yeah. difficult because they mm-hmm. may have been played at can or somewhere right. and then come here also john woo's hard-boiled woo's the killer was on my list of the top five films of 1989 yeah. so this is one i wished i'd been able to make time for and one more here man bites dog i didn't get to see that either but i know that a lot of people have affection for that film so man bites dog i finally caught up with okay for this list and Didn't I really like it, it but just an honorable mention okay yeah just an honorable mention for me hard-boiled i have seen and did consider, but I have some debate about whether or not it should be a 92 or 93 film. Benny's Video was a film from your favorite director, Michael Hanukkah, that I've always wanted to see. So that's one of my big regrets. And one of the most well-reviewed movies of that year that's a regret is Police Story 3 or Super Cop, the Jackie yeah, Chan Jackie film. Chan. Haven't seen that one either. So none of those were really considered. But in terms of movies I did give a lot of thought to bob roberts recently came up on the show top five mockumentary moments tim robbins debut i'm sorry i still love son of a woman i don't care what anybody says damage juliette binoche and jeremy irons orlando tilda swinton her breakout performance at least for me it was the first yeah, that sounds movie right. i discovered her in i do also like army of darkness quite a bit i don't necessarily love twin peaks fire walk with me but as a twin peaks fanatic I felt like I needed to mention it. I think it's obviously essential as part of that series. And you joked about whether or not my cousin Vinny would make my list. And the reality is... I know is, you really like it. I really like it. It actually was on again just a few nights ago, and I got stuck watching it. In terms of movies that you just don't ever shut off when they come on, I never get tired of watching my cousin Vinny. So my two kind of guilty pleasures, but I don't feel guilty at all about liking them. I think they're just incredibly rewatchable from 92. My cousin Vinny and White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> 
Okay. We're going Sizzler right after this show, Josh. White <laughs> Sounds good. Jump. Again, those are our picks for the best films of 1992. We want to know your picks or any other comments about the show. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. And we're at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. If you do want to visit the Filmspotting archives, you can find 10 years of shows at Filmspotting.net and vote in the current Filmspotting. Pull. Out in release this weekend, a couple things will highlight the Kartemquin Spring Showcase, previews of four upcoming projects. That's happening at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Love to support the great group over there at Kartemquin. And the Chicago premiere of the documentary about Hayao Miyazaki's Studio Ghibli, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. That's one I really want to see. We have talked over the past few weeks about the Chicago Film Critics Festival, May 1st through the 7th at the Music Box. You can hear our chat with one of the fest organizers, Steve Procopi, on our show a few weeks back and find a link to the full schedule for the fest in our show notes. Now, Josh, on Sunday, May 3rd, is the Slow West screening, the movie starring our beloved Michael Fassbender, and... 30 film spotting listeners will be there, right? That's right. And are you going to make it? I'm not sure yet. Okay. I'm still going to try to pull it off. I really want to. Josh may be there. I will not, unfortunately, be able to attend, but we are excited to be able to give out some passes. Those winners have already been contacted. On VOD, definitely of interest to us, and it's playing on Monday, May 4th on HBO, Montage of Heck, the Kurt Cobain documentary from Brett Morgan, who did Chicago 10 and The Kid Stays in the Picture. Out in wide release, Avengers, The Age of Ultron. Next week on the show, Josh, listeners will be treated to a review of Avengers, The Age of Ultron, and Film Spotting's top five most anticipated summer movies. I say treated because they won't have to listen to me talk about yes, Avengers. You look so relieved. Not and that you, kind not of, that you hated. want to see it. No, I didn't. You didn't hate, hate Avengers. You didn't really care for it. I but didn't you really weren't... care for it. But the fact that so many people went crazy for it made me kind of hate it. Yeah, it's one of those it, backlash it pushed you things. Yeah, it pushed over me over the, the edge, edge a little bit. I actually do really want to see Avengers too. I just don't expect great things from it like so many people do and we haven't seen it yet as of this taping there was the advanced screening here in chicago we both held off and i'm not going to be around next week for the taping but the great tasha robinson from the dissolve will be here with you and i don't want to spoil the show but i've gotten a sense that she's a fan of the movie. She's in favor. I do know yeah. she's in favor. So, so that's good. We have someone to come with some enthusiasm. That's right. I was kind of, you know, I, I liked Avengers, but wasn't a huge fan of it. So I'm glad she's excited about it. It'll be good to talk to her next week. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. My oh, seven my and You're six. just giving me a headache. My seven and just six. Just tell me you're only going to list the titles. And the three movies you're going to hear here in a minute after I... The three movies you're going to hear in a second are actually my, or sorry, five, four, and three. Oh I knew this gosh. confused me. Let me try this again. Let me go back. <laughs> this is why we don't Shut do up. this. <laughs> Shut up. This is the outtake. I had this all prepared because I knew I'd get screwed up on the math. <laughs>